You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most curious, innovative, and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Amy Schneider. It's remarkable how much of a difference it makes to see somebody that shares your identity in whatever way in a place you haven't seen anyone there before. That is Amy Schneider, Jeopardy! champion and passionate LGBTQ activist who recently wrote the book, and I love this title, listen to this, the title is In the Form of a Question, The Joys and Rewards of a Curious Life, set to debut October 3rd. I can't wait to hear Amy's journey to not only become a Jeopardy! champion, but to also use all that she is as a force for good in the world. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Schneider. Hi, Amy. Hello. It's so great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to dive into your story. Yeah. So first of all, wow, it's wonderful to have you today. I can't wait to hear about your Jeopardy journey as well as this new book that's coming out. But I'm going to start this podcast the way I start all my podcasts, by asking you 
where is your favorite restaurant? Meaning if you could take me anywhere to a singular restaurant that really makes you come alive, that you're happy about, that you're passionate about, where would it be? I guess the answer would be uh, Mockingbird. It's Mm. in downtown Oakland, uh, right across the street from the old Tribune Tower. And it's, uh, you know, basically Italian, but they've got a rotating menu, like every few months, it's a whole new thing, except for a few things like the garlic bread, for one thing, is the (laughs) best garlic bread you will ever have in your life. Ooh, I love a good garlic bread. Yeah. And it's just every time I've ordered something there, I've been like, wow, this is the best possible version of that thing. Wow. The other answer that I might give, and it's not necessarily my favorite restaurant, but the restaurant I would most want to take somebody to would be uh, Chili Time in Cincinnati. Okay. For people who have not had Cincinnati-style <laughs> chili, which is a, a controversial and divisive food. <laughs> I know it is. Is that where you're from? Are you from Cincinnati? Well, I'm from Dayton. Okay. So, uh, uh, like 30 miles north. But yeah, we're we're in the we're in the Cincinnati chili radius. There. Yes. And so it, it's a memory, it's nostalgia, it's a reminder of where you grew up, right? It it brings you back to your childhood. Yeah. And it's like I think it's about the fact that it's something that, you know, much like Ohio itself, people outside don't like it that much and are kind of looked down on it. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I don't live in Ohio anymore. But at the same time, I'm like, "Ah, but this is so good. And I don't know why anybody can't see how good this is. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing those two restaurants. I always say that someone's favorite restaurants is just the beginning, a little glimpse of understanding people and and where they're from and what they love. So thank you for that. Uh, You told me that you grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Tell me a little bit, have you always been super smart and someone who who loves facts and knowledge and a Jeopardy fan. What was your experience with Jeopardy as a child? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of what smart means is a complicated one, but I would pretty much say yes to all the other questions that I've always (laughs) been into knowing things and facts and all of that. You know, when I was a kid, I would love these books that would be like 500 craziest sports facts or whatever. (laughs) And it was just like no narration, no nothing, just like, and I would just eat it up. And yeah, and Jeopardy, I've been watching as long as I can remember. The Alex Trebek era of Jeopardy started when I was like five or six years old. And my parents Mm. must have pretty much started watching it right away because I can't remember it not being part of my routine. So it was a daily thing in your house. You were watching Jeopardy and hearing it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And at what point did the seed of a dream get planted in your head that maybe you could be on that show, that maybe you could do that? You know, it was it was pretty early. Again, the the complicated question is smart, but like I school came easily to me, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have a good memory for sure. And so that was something where all through childhood, like I was just getting praise for that reliably, you know, in our our small parish school, I was consistently at the top of the class. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a lot of what I constructed my identity around in childhood was just that I'm the smartest, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was that, there was that my dad actually tried out for Jeopardy and got kind of to the last stage of it. When I was a kid, I'm not sure how old, maybe like 10 years old. So, you know, there was, I I knew that that was the thing that was out there. And then Mm. in eighth grade, famously, I uh, was named most likely to appear on Jeopardy uh, (laughs) by my classmates. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's about right. I probably will. Oh, that's great. Uh, What did your dad think of you being on Jeopardy? Oh, by the time I finally made it on, he had uh, passed away, unfortunately. But he always knew I would be, I'm sure. Like, you know, he knew I was trying out and and all of that sort of thing. And it's it's just a numbers game. 
But yeah, it was definitely somebody I was thinking of as I was there. Is like sort of he didn't get his chance, so I was like the Schneider legacy lives on with me. <laughs> it must have been a, a little emotional because that was your dad's dream, and you were able to fulfill it posthumously for him in a way. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I think you know, it's it was emotional. It was also like you know his dream for me and and my mom's dream for me. I mean, yeah. that's. I say that I like loved facts and I love knowledge and all that sort of thing. And that is certainly in at least in great part due to the fact that my parents were that way. Yes. You know, my my dad was a programmer, but worked at a college. My mom was a math professor, but they were just both very interested in learning in education. They both saw it as sort of an end goal in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, not even like education. We, my parents weren't like on us about our grades particularly and, and, or any of that sort of thing or making sure we were applying to the right colleges and all of that. They just wanted us learning stuff. Right. And as I talk to you right now for our, our listeners, Amy is, uh, no one can see you right now, but behind her is literally, you know, uh, looks like hundreds of books. She's got bookcases. So it really speaks to, you know, who she is and, and all that she is about. I'm interested to hear because the book, first of all, I love the title of your new book. <laughs> all right. In the form of a question. And yeah, as you said, it's about curiosity leading with curiosity, despite the grades, despite where it could lead you, despite all that. That's what I'm getting a sense of what your parents gave to you, right? That it's it's about mm-hmm. being curious and interested in the world, period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My mom called it the life of the mind. Mm. This isn't something they ever said, but the the sort of the same concept behind the saying, like, you know, only boring people are bored. You know, that if you've if you've got that curiosity, you can always have interesting things to think about no matter what is going on in in, in your daily life. Yes. And I received your bio, but can you tell me what was your career post-college and what what, what did you do professionally while, you know, on this Jeopardy journey? Yeah. uh, So I was a a, a computer engineer myself, which is funny. Like I went into college planning to be a civil engineer. Because, you know, my parents, while they weren't on me about grades or anything, they weren't going to let me go major in like theater or something like that or creative writing or, or you know, these things that I, I kind of wanted to do. They wanted to make sure I got a degree that, that gave me some stability. And so going into college, I was like, oh, civil engineering, well, like you build stuff. And then I did it for a couple of years and realized that, no, you don't. You sit around and do a bunch of boring math. And then other people go out and actually build it. And it didn't have that creativity aspect to it. And then I realized that, oh, wait a minute. Perhaps I can just do the thing that I do in my spare time for fun that offers a you know stable career. That is also what my dad did and my uncle and other people I know. And for some reason literally did not occur to me until like I was three years into college that I might want to do it myself. Hmm. I know that in addition to a successful career and Jeopardy champion, you are a passionate transgender activist. And I'm just wondering, can we back up a little bit back to your childhood and whatever you feel comfortable sharing about your kind of journey of stepping into who you are? Mm -hmm. And at what point did you want to take being a transgender advocate on? Like, when did you say, you know what, here I am, I am going to devote my life Mm -hmm. to this path? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few different aspects to that. I mean, I think one of the things I say is the thing about being trans is that 
you're a trans activist every time you walk out your front door, mm-hmm. you know, like just by existing, you're doing activism. So in a sense, to decide to come out as trans is to decide to be a trans activist, given, you know, the way our, our society is right now. You know, and then it's like, when did I come to understand that about myself? Which is, I don't mind saying, a whole chapter in this book, and it's mm-hmm. an, an, a fascinating question, and one that, and one that I think in common with most trans people, I have been wrestling with ever since I came out. You know, like you're sort of like re going over your entire past and figuring out what did that all mean? How does this all make sense now? Given that it turns out that you know I was a woman the whole time. Like how mm. do, how does that all fit together? Mm. But then I think, you know, there's another side of it. So after I came out, I was... And what age, how old were you? Oh, yeah. That was, I was, it was 2017. I was 38. Wow, you were 38. Yeah. So far along on your journey, most people come out usually in the high school years or emerging out of college. But I guess there is no set time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, most people come out after 2010 in terms of being trans, apart from age. Because growing up, I didn't even know that trans was a thing that mm-hmm. existed. Wow. You know. As a child, you didn't even know it was an option. No, no, not at all. You know, it was the 80s. It was Ohio. I was raised in a, a Catholic environment. And, you know, even if I wasn't, there were very few places that trans people were publicly existing and accepted. And certainly they didn't exist in, in the media in any way. But when you were a young person, did you feel deeply that you were a woman, that you were a girl? Did you have an inkling that you did not feel like other people? No, but the thing about it is, I didn't think that I didn't feel like other people. I thought that all the other boys wanted to be girls too. Ah, you know, okay. So I didn't I think that I was different, except yep. in the sense that I seemed to have a bit more trouble hiding it. But it was like, yeah, of course, I would have loved to, like, you know, wear pretty things and grow my hair out and do all this sort of stuff, just like all the other boys would like to. But apparently we're not allowed to. Oh, well, you know. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, 
you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. All right. So at 38, where is 38 in, in terms of your Jeopardy journey as well? So if you came out at 38, where mm-hmm. have you already been on Jeopardy at that point? I have not. I've been trying out for Jeopardy for okay. about 10 years at that point already. Okay. And then for about two years after that, I stopped trying out because I couldn't imagine being comfortable with being on television. Wow. You know, I was very self-conscious. I, you know, felt like you, you sort of just feel like everyone's staring at you all the time early in transition and, and everybody's like judging you and all these sorts of things. And really what's happening is all of the self-judgment that you've been doing in your head all these years that's that's kept you in the closet. You're now assuming that everybody else is is thinking. The You're projecting same. it on everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Ooh. So this is interesting. So you're you're in this period where you're you've come out. You stop trying out for Jeopardy. What changes your mind to say, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to try out anyway, and I'm going to try out as myself. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a specific moment, but over time, I transitioned. I came out, and I live in the Bay Area, and all of the bad things that I was afraid of just kept not happening. Mm. And it became a thing where I was just like, you know, I was like less and less conscious of the fact that I was trans and that people might be noticing that. And I was just back to just sort of like being myself and living my life. And I know that it also helped seeing uh, trans people compete on Jeopardy. Mm. There were a handful of them. And so having seen that, having gotten used to the fact that people see me every day i'm going out you know like whatever judgments people want to make they've had the last couple of years to make them and it hasn't really been happening that much and this has been my dream my whole life and i guess it's uh time to start chasing that dream again how do you prepare when you find out you're going to be on jeopardy what is your mo how do you begin the preparation because that seems kind of daunting yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is. And and that's why, you know, one of the things I say is that to a certain extent, you can't really study for Jeopardy. There's too much of it. You just have to kind of live the life where you learn a lot of things or, you know, enjoy knowing stuff and, and mm. doing it for, for the pleasure of knowing. I think that of however many questions I answered, no more than a handful were ones that I knew because I'd specifically studied about them for Jeopardy. Although there were a few. Oh, interesting. So you're saying the majority of the questions that you got right was knowledge you had just because of your life, because of all the accumulation of watching the Jeopardy and studying, not studying, but just interested in reading as, as, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it had nothing to do with actually putting the head to the book and and studying. Yeah. And I mean, not nothing, you know, like, because 
apart from the sort of general background learning that I've done my whole life, there are a few times the way the Jeopardy audition process works is after the last stage of the audition, they just say, okay, in the next 18 months, you might get a call saying you'll be on the show. And if the 18 months go by and it hasn't happened, then start the process over again. Okay. So there have been a few times in my life where I was in that period where the call might be coming any day. And the main thing I did was to go through Jeopardy, jarchive.com, that Mm -hmm. has basically every question and answer from the the show's history. And just sort of like going through that whenever I was on my commute or I had some downtime or whatever, just kind of like scrolling through. Because the thing about Jeopardy is it's, it's not just about knowing a lot of stuff. It's about, A, knowing the specific type of stuff that Jeopardy asks about. There's no formal limitation to what they'll ask about, but they do have, you can kind of tell what things are considered fair game and what kind of things are too obscure if you've you know been watching the show your whole life, which I have. And the other thing about it is Jeopardy is so fast. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yes. a difference between Jeopardy and something like a bar trivia game where you've got a few minutes to like think it over and try to come up with something. And one of the things you have to be able to do really quickly on Jeopardy is figure out what they're actually asking. Mm -hmm. Because they do this weird, you have to answer in a form of a question sort of thing. Just parsing the clue and figuring out, wait, are they asking for the country or the capital city? Or are they asking for the the movie or the actor? Things like that is also really important. As much as knowing the answer, you have to know the question. Was nerves a factor? And did you do anything differently to kind of get in a, a good headspace that you could handle the jitters because you could be excellent. You could be quick. You, as you said, it's about like mental acuity and being really fast, but you could just, you could fold, you could fold like a wet blanket that when you're up there. So is, what was, what was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, absolutely nerves were a factor. And I do think that in the last really like week before my first taping date, I realized that I needed to focus more on the psychological side because I realized that, you know, this was something that at this point I'd been imagining, you know, in my future for like 30 years of my life. Wow. That at some point I'm going to be on Jeopardy. And it was about to happen. And the odds are, you know, two out of three people on every episode lose, right? So the odds were I was going to go, you know, have my 30 minutes on stage, lose, and that would be it. And I would never be on Jeopardy again after that. And realizing that the end might be that close was really kind of like crushing me. And so I had to spend some serious time sitting with that and telling myself that might happen. That's okay. It is really fine if you get on and lose. That's just the way it goes. Because otherwise it was just going to be that that was just going to be crushing me and it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, the other thing I worked on was just like relatedly was just about focus. Just like, listen, these 30 minutes, you have a real excuse that you will believe when you tell your brain that can wait. Everything in the world can wait for 30 minutes when you're on stage Anything else that crosses my field of consciousness, I can bat away and it'll be there at the end because this is the only chance I will ever get to to be on Jeopardy. And if I lose, I lose. But I don't want to I don't want to miss a thing, as Aerosmith once said. <laughs> exactly. Did you do any like visualization of you on on stage and kind of working through and anything you do with the, with the trigger? Yeah, I mean, I had been on occasion when I would watch the show at home, like having like a pen and and sort of practicing that. 
And that's one of those things where it's like, you just don't know until you get there if you're good at it or not. Right. You can't tell if you're coming in too early or too oh, late. Oh, I know. It's heartbreaking because you could know all the answers, but you're too late. You're too late. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious, you know, through this whole experience, you wrote this memoir. What did mm-hmm. you want to say through this book? Well, I think there was two things. The one that I started out with that we kind of touched on was about the value of curiosity and learning and and the fact that, as I said, most of the things I knew on Jeopardy weren't things I learned for Jeopardy. They were just things I learned because I found out about them. And more importantly, that that same drive and curiosity has given me much more important things and much better benefits than just Jeopardy, as amazing as that was, mm-hmm. you know, including ultimately like figuring out myself, mm-hmm. uh, which was the thing I, I, for so long, that was the one thing I refused to be curious about. And then mm-hmm. once I finally did, I found I, I'm, it turns out I'm fascinating. Isn't that something that's worth it all, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I, I wanted to try to communicate some of just why it is that I, I just find it so satisfying to learn new things and what the pleasure is I get out of that. But then as I was writing, Another aspect of it is that, you know, I have become a famous celebrity trans person, Amy Schneider. And, you know, I get recognized on the street. I hear from so many people. I hear from so many people about what my appearance on Jeopardy meant to them. And I know that part of the effect that I had was I was on the most normal, non-threatening show on TV, Jeopardy. And I was telling family-friendly 15-second anecdotes and being my best self, putting my best face forward and all these sorts of things. And I felt like that all people were seeing was my best self. And I worried about people who were accepting of me, were they then using me to give themselves license to not accept other trans people mm-hmm. who weren't as polished and, you know, everything else as the version of me that they saw? Mm-hmm. And so the the second goal that came into it as I was writing was to sort of just complicate my image, talk about the messiness of my life, talk about my histories with drug use, my histories with sexual experimentation and things like that, because those are things that a lot of trans people, a lot of queer people go through. Mm-hmm. When you're queer, you're oftentimes cast out of the sort of moral framework that you grew up in. And you have to go figure everything out for yourself. And Mm -hmm. that can go a lot of different directions. And so I wanted to show that just because somebody has done these things, has had some less savory sides to their life, that's not incompatible with being the friendly Jeopardy champion Amy Schneider that you know. Isn't it something that when when you show up exactly as who you are, you inspire people just by doing that? Right. You don't have to do anything beyond that. Like just the fact that you showed up as yourself, you are inspiring people who really need someone to see and to look up to. Yeah, it was stunning to me how how much of an impact that had. You know, one of the other like mantras I was having for myself going into the taping was was to be myself and just say, you know, I was just saying to myself, don't worry about how you're coming off. Be yourself. And then however people react, you'll be okay with because they're reacting to you and not some like, you won't have failed at putting on an image. You will have just been yourself. So I was doing that just to calm my nerves and just to be able to focus on the game. But yeah, it, it I could see what an impact it had. And, and, and I heard that from so many people. And I think that it's really a reminder. We talk about representation and it can feel like a sort of 
formulaic, checking off a box sort of thing, like, oh, representation is just sort of like a, you know, eating your vegetables sort of thing, like that would be good. But it's remarkable how much of a difference it makes to see somebody that shares your identity in whatever way in a place you haven't seen anyone there before. Like, I wouldn't think about myself that, oh, I'm affected by this lack of representation. Like, I know I can be in those places even if no trans person's been there before. But it turns out, no, I do need to see someone else there before me to really believe that I can do it. Well, even as you said, you were looking for the handful of trans people who had been on the show as themselves. Like that to you was inspiring. Like, oh, they did it. I could do it too. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, it's also a thing too, I think that, you know, one of the things that had been on my mind in the time leading up to Jeopardy that, that wasn't related, but was the fact that I did transition as a white tech worker in the Bay Area and had a pretty smooth run of things as as trans people's lives go. And being very conscious of all the awful things the trans people before me had gone through to create a place, even just the bubble in the Bay Area, where I could have that. Right. And I was feeling this sort of like responsibility, like, what am I doing to make the people coming after me lives easier? And then Jeopardy happened and it was like, oh, wow, that that was not how I planned to be doing my part for the next <laughs> next generation. But uh, it worked out great. <laughs> it did. It did indeed. So uh, two questions. Are you currently still an engineer or are you have you shifted? I have shifted. Yeah. No, I was really kind of burnt out on that industry anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing it for 20 years. And, you know, I think that there is sort of a cliche about trans women being computer programmers. Like it is, they are disproportionately represented there for whatever reason. Um, and I think, you know, there's something to the idea of computers don't have gender. They don't have complicated feelings. You don't, mm-hmm. nothing will, will worry you if you're like talking to a computer and you can find them interesting. And then I think once I transitioned, I found myself and other people so much more interesting that I didn't need to escape into computers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so it had just become much more of a paycheck job rather than something I was really invested in. So when I won a million dollars, I was like, well, great. I was already checked out of this industry. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what's out there. And where are you currently in the midst of finding out? Or what? Are you, what's next for Amy Schneider? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a great question, especially right now. I mean, you know, having just kind of basically more or less wrapped up the book there's still a couple like rounds of copy editing and checking commas and that sort of thing but it's essentially done you know jeopardy masters happened a month ago and so i don't have any jeopardy in my foreseeable future and so the question of what's next is kind of hanging over me a bit at the moment you know and that's the life i've chosen here of being a professional former jeopardy champion is not something that there's a lot of templates to follow (laughs) So I'm having to find out what my career is as as it goes along. And that's frightening, but it's also thrilling and exciting, exciting in, in a yeah. way that, yeah, that I, I wouldn't have expected. If I had been told that this was the path I was going to be taking, all I would have been able to think about was how scary it would have been. Mm. But now that I'm in it, I, I see that that's like this far outweighed by the fulfillment. So what's next for Amy Schneider? Stay tuned. We don't know. I, yes. right? We don't know yet. I mean, there are some possible things coming up that'd be pretty neat. But what I will say though is that ideally what's next for me, apart from anything else, is I really enjoy the process of writing the book. Like 
anybody who was around me during it would say, you were enjoying that? That was you enjoying it? Because I was always complaining. But, you know, if in five years I could confidently say that what I do is writing, I would be very comfortable with that. That would be really great. Yeah. And a way to continue your advocacy work as well, perhaps maybe a, a meshing of the two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is always going to be part of everything I do, again, because I'm trans and people are going to politicize my existence and I'm going to keep existing. So I guess I'm I'm going to be advocating. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me on To Dine for the Podcast. I love learning about you and I know the listeners have too. So thank you very much, Amy. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to To Dine for the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lovatsa, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 